Hey everyone, it's Mike Wong, and happy second birthday to Strange New Worlds! That's right, we're two years old now, with 74 episodes in the bank. I can't believe it's been this long. I still remember starting this podcast kind of on a whim at the beginning of summer 2017 when the Star Trek Discovery trailers were hitting us in full blast. So I've talked about how Strange New Worlds started numerous times in the podcast, but just as a reminder for those of you who may be new to the show, basically it was the beautiful depiction of binary protoplanetary disks in formation from the trailer of Star Trek Discovery. It was such a glorious depiction of a real astrophysical phenomenon that wasn't coming through a telescope thousands of light years away, but that we were seeing up close and personal. And I thought, wow, that's so amazing. And I was scanning the universe of Star Trek podcasts for a mention of binary protoplanetary disks, and I couldn't find it. And so I thought, you know what? If nobody else is going to talk about it, I think I will, and I'll start my own podcast. And ever since that first episode, talking about the Star Trek Discovery trailer, then going through a couple of episodes examining the science of protoplanetary disks and planet formation, we've talked about so many wonderful scientific topics and concepts that are at the core of Star Trek, from the theory of evolution to solar flares to how clouds form and act on other worlds. And over the past two years, we've also covered numerous happenings in science and Star Trek, from the New Horizons spacecraft flyby of the Kuiper Belt object MU-69 to the 2018 Star Trek Las Vegas convention to the premiere of the Deep Space Nine documentary last month. It has just been a fantastic journey bringing you content from the intersection of science and Star Trek. Now, this whole journey would not have been possible without the help from my friend and colleague Elise Cutts. Longtime listeners will remember that Elise was my co-host for many early Strange New Worlds episodes. She was a Caltech undergraduate, and we met at Caltech doing one of the geekiest things possible. We were part of Boldly Go!, which was a Star Trek parody musical that Caltech put on in 2016, part of the grand celebration for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, or at least that's how I saw it. I don't know if it was quite planned that way, but that's how I treated it, as Star Trek is 50 years old, and I am just going to geek out right now doing something I've never done before. I leapt into musical theater and had a blast and met one of my best friends. So I remember that year, which was Elise's freshman year at Caltech, she was intending on doing a major in physics. But then that year felt the allure of planetary science and switched her major. And then she kind of decided that what she was really interested in was the solid parts of planets and decided to switch her major again, this time to geology. And all this while, she was dabbling in astrobiology, attending these astrobiology reading group meetings that I was running. And she was really awesome as just a freshman or a sophomore, you know, engaging with that community and engaging with this highly diverse material. And 
contributing to the discussion. And I think it was through all of that that Elise kind of realized that what intrigued her most was the intersection between the lifeless planet and life itself, and how those two are very interconnected, intertwined, and influence one another. And so she switched her major one final time to geo biology, which is an important intersection of very well-established fields, geology and biology, which is one of the pillars that sort of hold up this massive tent under which is a network of sciences that we collectively call astrobiology. And while I got to watch Elise grow as a young scientist, I also got to see her develop as a science communicator and as a journalist. Elise was the editor-in-chief for Caltech's yearbook, The Big T, and interned at the Caltech Science Communication Office. Now, while those were two amazing things, what you really care about is the fact that she helped me set the course for strange new worlds and helped make it the podcast that it is today. So this episode is for the multiverse of talent in a carbon-based shell that we call... Elise cuts. This one's for Elise, Norma Jean, Patty Boyd, and Carol King, Hollywood Lawn, Linda Eastman, Candy Darling, got it started with the song. Well, it was no surprise to me that Elise was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship earlier this year, which will take her to Denmark to study microbial life using a very special instrument and a very special technique. Now, I announced her Fulbright Fellowship result earlier on in this podcast, but today we will finally have Elise herself on the podcast to explain her Fulbright project just a few days before her graduation from Caltech. And then we are going to beam in Dr. Peter Gao to help us recap our visit to the Paley Center's Star Trek Discovery Fight for the Future exhibit in Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. Ready? Let's do it. So, for one final time, I am joined by Elise Cutts at the California Institute of Technology. Oh, we don't know that we'll never happen to be here at the same time ever again. The odds are going to go down significantly after I graduate. Indeed. And you are literally this close. I'm holding my fingers like a millimeter apart from each other <laughs> from graduating from Caltech with your Bachelor's of Science degree in geobiology. Is that correct? Yep, that's it. And that means that you are about to embark on a brand new journey and explore some strange new countries. Um, so I have told the listeners of Strange New Worlds that my esteemed Former co-host, Elise... Oh, you flatter me. Uh, <laughs> ...has been awarded what is called a Fulbright Fellowship. So, Elise, what is a Fulbright Fellowship? 
Yeah, so Fulbright is a essentially a very large study abroad program that's run by the U.S. government and many country partners around the world. And what it does is there are sort of two types. There's the research Fulbright and there's the English teaching fellowship Fulbrights. I got a research Fulbright. And what that is, is it sends us abroad for about a year. I'm going for 10 months to go do a research project that we couldn't really do in the United States is sort of the goal. And it's also a exchange program. So it's intended to foster goodwill between America and other countries. I've got a research grant, so I'm going to go do research in Denmark for a year is is what I'm doing. If you get an English teaching fellowship, then you're teaching English somewhere for a year instead. And it's a bit of a different thing. But people at all different stages of their careers get these things. And I was lucky enough to nab one right now getting out of college before going on to whatever comes after that. A lot of people probably don't give much thought to the fact that science requires money to do. Um, you know, science is a job. It's not just something that we do in our spare time because we're curious about the world. I mean, we are curious about the world, but it also requires financing and we need to be able to live somewhere. We need to be able to travel to those places. We need to be able to afford equipment and technology to help us along the way. And so Luckily, there are organizations out there that award these grants or these large sums of money to people who are well qualified to get them and to use that money to pursue something in another corner of the world that couldn't be accomplished where they are currently situated. So for your specific case, Elise, you are going all the way to Denmark to pursue a project. Why Denmark? So it all comes down to an instrument that I need to use. The project that I'm doing involves making really precise measurements of oxygen concentrations. And it just turns out that the best instrument to do this, and really the only instrument that can do it at the precision that we want for this experiment, is in Denmark. There are two in Denmark, and there's one in Austria. Uh, I don't speak German, at least not very well. and. Uh, the Danes are more than happy to take in Anglophone scientists and just, you know, occasionally torture us with a few Danish words for fun. Uh, so I can I can do research there and I can have access to this instrument. Also, some of my research mentors know this person who I'm going to be working with, so I had more connections there. And uh, there are three of these instruments, but they're not all being used by people who do the kind of research that I do. So this is really kind of the one place that I can do this experiment, which is why I was able to make a good case for the U.S. government to send me to a cool country to live in for a year. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what exactly is this experiment? Now, you mentioned measuring oxygen concentrations, so I assume that it has something to do with the air that we breathe? Yes, in a way. So if you're unaware, if we haven't told you this before, or if you haven't heard it from somewhere else, or Cosmos, maybe... The Earth did not start out with very much oxygen at all. Really, you would have needed a spacesuit to walk around on this planet until, if, if you start Earth history on the 1st of January, you would need a spacesuit to walk around on Earth until halfway through November. And oxygen started to rise before that point, but it sort of levels off. Once photosynthesis is created and oxygen starts to be produced by sort of the precursors to plants, oxygen rises, but it levels off at about 10% of modern day concentrations, and it stays that way for a billion years. And so you would still need a spacesuit through all of that time as well. Until finally, for a reason we don't really understand, it spikes up to current day levels around when the Cambrian explosion happened about 545 million years ago. 
please, if I made a small mistake on that number, sort of roughly in the correct ballpark, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and and for people who haven't heard about the Cambrian explosion, nothing is exploding. Yeah, there's no actual explosion. It's it's just uh, when animals start to appear, when, when we start to see animals appearing in the fossil record. So it's kind of microbes, 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 microbes for billions of years, and then all of a sudden, 545 million years ago, animals. And that's the Cambrian explosion. Oxygen sort of peaks right before then, and then levels off to current day levels. But nobody really knows why, after life figured out how to make oxygen, after cyanobacteria started making it, why it didn't just hit modern day levels immediately. Why did we have this so-called boring billion in which oxygen levels stayed at about 10% current day levels, didn't really change, and they just stuck that way and then all of a sudden spiked up. So that's a question that geobiologists and geologists are, are thinking about. And my research project is related to one of the hypotheses that people are bending about to try and explain why that might have happened. And roughly, what this hypothesis would say is that there was a feedback loop created. Because in order to grow, the organisms that produce oxygen need what's called fixed nitrogen. And this is essentially fertilizer. There's tons of nitrogen in the air, but most organisms can't use it until it's been processed into a different form, this fixed form by other organisms. And the enzyme, the protein in cells that do this fixing process, that make this fertilizer, is really, really, really sensitive to oxygen. It just shuts down if there's oxygen around, because it evolved far before oxygen happened and it's very sensitive to it. So what people think might have happened is as cyanobacteria were putting oxygen into the atmosphere, they were inadvertently poisoning the organisms, or even themselves, because they can do this fixing process, they're inadvertently poisoning this process that fixes their fertilizer. So they made it impossible for them to grow by growing. So you get this sort of negative feedback loop and you level out at a lower level than today until some big geologic event upsets the balance. We can't be really sure about eliminating or confirming that hypothesis yet because nobody has actually made the graph of oxygen levels versus activity of this enzyme. Scientists don't really know exactly how it behaves under very, very low oxygen concentrations just because we can't measure them that precisely. So it's difficult for us to model what would have happened in the past because while we know this enzyme is sensitive to oxygen, we don't know exactly how its sensitivity plots out on a graph um, and how it works out in a living cell, not just a bare enzyme, how these cells respond to oxygen levels changing. So what I'm doing is making that graph. I'm going to grow cells under very precisely measured, very low oxygen conditions and track how they respond in their nitrogen fixing behavior. That's essentially the project is to make a graph. All right, so let me see if I can recap yeah, sorry, the story of Earth history. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, there were just microbes on Earth, and they were trying to get their nitrogen from the nitrogen in the air. Mm -hmm. And they were doing this pretty well until there was a clever microbe that decided it was going to do a metabolism that spat oxygen into the air. Yes. And the molecular machines that are used to grab this nitrogen couldn't deal with the oxygen at all. And so you're trying to figure out exactly how sensitive those exact machines are to trace amounts of oxygen in the air. And how, how it works in cells and living cells and tracking how they do it. This is also relevant to modern conditions because in the oceans, as climate is changing, there are more and more parts of the ocean that don't have oxygen. And so this could have a big impact on how fertile the oceans are. If this changes how much nitrogen is being fixed, 
if it causes a lot more, if it causes a lot less, we don't know how that's going to impact some economically and culturally important sea resources. So I'm interested in the earth history aspect, but you know, there's a, there's a more practical side to it too, I suppose. How do you grow an ancient organism in a modern day lab? So you can't, you can only grow their descendants. Um, you can grow organisms that you think are doing a primitive version of that process. You can grow organisms that do a process in a variety of different ways and hope they have some kind of shared similarity that looks like it's really primordial because it's shared across a lot of groups. So it's not like we've resurrected anything from the ancient past. Somehow, modern-day organisms have coped with the fact that we have 21% oxygen in our atmosphere and are still able to do this nitrogen-fixing process. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are the mechanisms with which life has adapted to the fact that we have, or rather, the ancient cyanobacteria have flooded our atmosphere with this poisonous oxygen compound. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting strategies. So one is to just not be where the oxygen is. That's probably the easiest strategy. So a lot of nitrogen fixation happens at plant roots, which are these anoxic environments. They're specially adapted symbiotic communities of organisms that live associated with those roots, and they fix nitrogen. You can go into the deep ocean, and you can go into parts of the ocean that don't have oxygen. You can go into sediments that don't have oxygen. That's one way to do it. Uh, another way is to live in a community of like-minded microbes and be in the middle of that community and hope that your friends eat all the oxygen before it gets to you. So you can create a ball, essentially, of microbes and hope that they'll gobble up all of the oxygen to, to fuel their you know burning glucose metabolisms before the oxygen can ever get to you. So if you're in the middle, you can fix the nitrogen. There's a really interesting case of a cyanobacteria. I believe it's a cyanobacteria that they will grow and a set fraction of their community will be kept anoxic. They will not produce oxygen and they will segregate themselves away from it with these thick cell walls and they'll fix nitrogen for the rest of their community and they'll be fed off of the carbon that's fixed by the other members of their community. So you have this crazy almost multicellularity going on with these guys, which is which is quite cool. So they're creating a pocket, one cell in their group of, you know, order of magnitude 10 that does this for them, which is which is pretty cool. So you can separate the jobs. And they're the same species. Yes, that is why it's so remarkable. Yeah, how do they know to count every 10 to to produce the one special cell that's closes itself off from the world. I think it would be really cool for a Star Trek episode to sort of run away with this idea and say, if complex cell forms, what we would call eukaryotic organisms in scientific terminology, didn't evolve on Earth, given billions of years of the more simple life forms living and developing in these complex communities and slowly differentiating into different jobs and different roles and having this primitive multicellular nature, what if you gave that a few more billion years to evolve? What more complex forms of these microbial communities might evolve? And could you come up with a multicellular organism that was comprised of prokaryotic cells rather than eukaryotic cells? Interesting. I mean, at our cores, us eukaryotes are sort of prokaryotes. Sort of. We got very fancy along the way, but we weren't here from the beginning. So, yeah, I don't know if you would end up pushing to something like us. That's a really interesting question. Or if you could just stay organized on the level of single prokaryotes, do you have to get big and complicated and have a nucleus and that fancy organelles? It's a really interesting question. Yeah. Or a multicellular species that 
is clonal, that some of them develop differently would be interesting too. So imagine a group of humans or a group of aliens per se, and they come out in batches of 10 clones, but one of those clones will develop to do something different. It's place in society is defined by how it changes. Yeah, it's almost like gender roles, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. if, if people were clonal and there was actually no genetic basis for those differences, it's just a developmental thing. Yeah. Now you're going off to Denmark reminds me of this Star Trek episode where Commander Riker does a like a, a, a ship transfer with a Klingon vessel. It's a, sort of an exchange program. And Riker is really up for it. He's like all game. You know, the Klingons sit down at the dinner table and they give him a plate of live wriggling gach. And, you know, they're like, oh, are you not puny human? Are you not used to your food moving on your plate or something or other? And, and Riker's just like, I'm ready to eat this. Down for the gach. I'm down, down for the gach. Exactly. And, and so I'm wondering, um, just from a cultural perspective, you going over to Denmark, is there something, one thing in particular that you're really looking forward to about that country? I suppose saying the weather would be a bit shallow, but that is something I'm quite excited about. Because <laughs> you're originally from Portland. Yes, it's not entirely dissimilar from what I grew up with, and I like sweaters. But on a more cultural side, let's see. I'm excited for the work culture. I've heard that it is very different than the American work culture, in that people work hard when they're at work, but they're not expected to take their work home with them or to put in crazy long hours, you know, even when people have their full-time careers and they're fully-fledged adults and all that, they'll still have, many of them, vacation time in the summer and people take it and it's not expected for you to be on all the time and that will be a nice change of pace. And I'm curious to see if, if I feel like it has any kind of negative impacts on the science or if I think that hey this is just a net positive you know it's it's going to be a different experience granted my advisor is an American so maybe that won't be quite as uh quite as experienced as mm -hmm. it would have been if I was working for a Dane but he's been there long enough he's probably yeah. assimilated <laughs> well I'm sure you're going to have a great time over there and I'm sure that you will learn a lot from being in a completely different place, surrounded by completely different minds in a different culture. And you'll also be able to contribute a lot, too, because you you have a lot of experience from your time here at Caltech. And you are an excellent scientist and science communicator, as, as I know personally from working Again, with you on numerous me. projects. Again, too much. Too much. <laughs> well, I'm but a small undergrad. Mm. Not but a small undergrad. You are an undergrad from Caltech, and you are going to go and Mike's change the world. Mike's pumping his fists. Yeah. Like. No, I, I really believe that, uh, that you're going to go make a, a big splash over there across the pond. Um, so, is it now time to talk about this exhibit that we yes. want to? Yes. Okay. That was a good exhibit. Should we beam in a Peter Gao? Yes. Okay. Hello! Hey, Peter! Thanks for joining us. I'm sorry we had to kill you and rematerialize you. It's the worst, really. Oh. I feel fine, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was giving uh, my Science of Star Trek talk in Seattle just last weekend, and somebody actually asked me at the end of the talk, he was like, my buddy and I have been in a fight over whether or not you die when you go through a transporter. Could you settle it for me? And of course I said, you definitely die when you go through a transporter. Your atoms are ripped apart, you're turned into energy, and then zapped across space. So, yeah, sorry we killed you. 
but you're back. Hey, we got a better version, maybe. We Same version. Better version. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Upgraded, be Peter. Yeah. I, I feel refreshed. <laughs> hey, you know, I wonder if... This is another sci-fi concept. Maybe, like, you know, when cells replicate or whenever there is any kind of re- reproduction in, in biology, there are always these little chances for mutation, right? It's like one in, what, 100 million or one in, one in a billion chance for a nucleotide to, to mutate. I wonder if that could happen for transporters too. Like people who go through transporters so much, they actually start to be different. God, you come out ginger on the other end. Yeah. No, no. That's what the Heisenberg compensates compensates for statistical mutations. Aren't there entire Star Trek episodes based around transporter malfunctions? I feel like they're not quite as reliable as we like to think they are. That's just because the Heisenberg compensators were... We split Kirk in half. We're on the fritz. They're on the fritz. All right, so we just went to the Paley Center for Media in Beverly Hills, and we saw the Star Trek Discovery Fight for the Future exhibit. Opening thoughts on what you saw when you walked in the doors? There was a lot of Star Trek there, way more than I usually see in a public space. Yeah, I think that it was a really cool collection of real props from the series, and I feel like we don't often get to see that. As fans, we see pictures online, we watch the episodes, maybe multiple times, and, uh, and to be real close to the actual things that were filmed on screen. I mean, Peter, you were even so close that uh, you may have been warned not to be that close to them. I felt their material. <laughs> How did was... that feel, Peter? I feel like clothing. <laughs> feel like clothing. Well, okay. It's good. That's good. Because they were. <laughs> okay. Um, what was your favorite artifact from Star Trek Discovery that you Ooh. saw? Amanda's dress was really cool. Actually, I would have liked her dress, but Sarek's robes with the Vulcan script. So they actually bothered to go and remember that they have Vulcan script, which was great. I've been a little peeved about this for a long time. Um, so they went and found one of the, the nice Vulcan alphabets, the curly Q one, and they embroidered Vulcan script on Sarek's robe in a very subtle way. And I thought that was a really nice detail. I took a picture of it, and I'm hoping to try and translate it later to see if it says anything or if it's just gobbledygook. Turns out it's gobbledygook. Or perhaps even less than gobbledygook. But it was cool to see. I think the costumes, for sure, there's so much care that goes into those. You can just tell whoever was working on them really, really cared about the details, which was awesome. Peter, what was your favorite artifact from this exhibit? So I thought the Red Angel suit, uh, there was one that was strung up on the ceiling, but there was also one that was stood up. Uh, if you look really closely, you can see a lot of battle damage almost, which I thought was a really, really cool detail. It just tells you that over however many years that Burnham's mom has been jumping back and forth, she did more than just appear and make something happen and then disappear. For all we know, maybe she even fought the machines uh, in 900 years into the future in the suit. And the other thing was the spacesuits that were shown. I really liked the, the very small details that they had. They had the chevrons all over the place, and other parts of it were all in this honeycomb pattern. 
Reminded me of the James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> <laughs> Remind listeners what the James Webb Space Telescope is. Oh, the James Webb Space Telescope is a mythical telescope that may or may not be <laughs> tears. <laughs> Just sitting here pretending to cry. <laughs> that may or, well, okay, so it's the it's supposedly the next um, great observatory that will hopefully go up in the next couple of years. It has a primary mirror six and a half meters across, which is much larger than Hubble's, which I think is about two and two two point four meters across. So it's sort of the hope for pretty much all of astronomy right now. Uh, so the next great eye in space, and its primary mirror is composed of lots of hexagonal segments. And why is it like that? So it's like that because the mirror is so big that you need to fold it to fit it into a rocket <laughs> to launch it into into orbit. It keeps getting delayed though, which is why we make jokes about it being a theoretical telescope or crying. It, it's it's been promised for many many years and it keeps getting pushed back and the the budget keeps ballooning in size. So, it's kind of a a meme among astronomers, I would say at this point. A meme we all hope comes true. <laughs> yeah, the scope actually exists. The mirrors have been built. It, they just haven't really been completed and launched into space yet. But uh, as of this recording, it is scheduled to launch in 2021. Yeah, they're kind of in too deep at this point to back out. It's just a matter of 2021, 2022, 2032, 2053, 27. <laughs> yeah. Do we get warp drive before James Webb? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe Red Angel knows. Another really cool thing that they had there was the captain's chair from the Discovery. Now, we three were actually part of a Star Trek Beyond fan event back in 2016. Can you believe it's been three years since then? Oh it's it's God. it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And that was a really special event um, for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Of course, we're celebrating it on the big screen with the launch of Star Trek Beyond. But they threw this extra fan event that you had to enter a contest to attend. And we actually succeeded in winning tickets to this contest by creating videos showing how much we loved Star Trek. Um, I don't know if you guys have any particularly fond memories. Didn't I'll I get interviewed to... for something? That's right. Uh, Larry Nemechek, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, who is known in the Star Trek community as Dr. Trek. He is like one of the biggest writers of, I think, Star Trek nonfiction books. What that means is like a book that pretends it's not outside of the Star Trek universe, but like Star Trek Star Charts, for instance, was authored by this guy. And he interviewed Elise at, at this fan event and her photo and her quotes were uh, on the same spread as Chris Pine, uh, which is really cool. So, yeah, it's yeah. a terrible photo. I still had braces. This was right before I got jaw surgery. There was, there was a mess going on, <laughs> uh, but it was it was a good time. Well, I remember filming all the videos. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> one week straight, we did nothing but make videos, and it, I thought I'm very proud of those work because we literally shot these mini, mini movies in the span of one day, and not just shot, but created the concept, wrote the script, shot, edit, and upload all in 24 hours. Well, I guess 16 hours because we had to sleep. 
Yeah, that was a week in which very little science got done, but it was probably the best week of Caltech. <laughs> um, I'll put links to the YouTube videos uh, in the show notes for you to check them out. But anyway, the reason why I went into this tangent is because there was a captain's chair from those movies at that event. So at the Discovery event, we had the Discovery chair. It, it brought me back because we were, you know, we're all together again. We're going to a Star Trek event and we're sitting in this captain's chair. And... Star Trek has evolved in, well, some, some might say not very much between the, the aesthetic of the Kelvin timeline and the aesthetic of Discovery, but the notion of Star Trek has also evolved from a, a thing that was sort of dying off, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s on TV and then sort of get, got resurrected every three years on, uh, on the big screen um, to, to now when we are literally entering a new golden age of Star Trek with Discovery in full swing, with Picard in production, with a bunch of animated series in production, with Section 31 series that is promised. And I was just wondering, was there any difference when you sat in that captain's chair three years ago at the Beyond event and when you sat in the captain's chair now, today? I'm just trying not to break the captain's chair. You're just trying not? (laughs) (laughs) So from my perspective, like when we went to the Beyond thing, it was a really special time because honestly I did not know how much Star Trek there would be ever you know like you used to get a new hour of Star Trek once a week on television and then it slowed down and then we were getting these like droppings of amazing J.J. Abrams movies that you can get really excited about when they come out but then like nothing in between and so when I sat in that captain's chair for Beyond, I was like, this is a really momentous moment. I found a group of really close friends to share Star Trek with, and we get really excited about on a very, like a very long periodicity uh, of, <laughs> of excitement. And now when I sat in the Discovery chair, I was just like, you know, same people, it's a captain's chair, but it doesn't feel that grand anymore. I mean, granted, we won our way into the other event. Yeah. It was dark. Zachary Quinto was there. <laughs> Zachary Quinto was there. Uh, there were all these laser lights and dance floors and like <laughs> the background. So there was a bit of grandiosity. Yeah. You know, also nobody was really waiting in line for this one. There was not a lot of people there. It was all sunny and bright and very well lit. No dramatic music in the background. No Zachary Quinto's insight. Maybe mm-hmm. he was there. I just didn't see him. <laughs> it was Beverly Hills. Who yeah. knows? So the the setting yeah. was very different, and that's a good point. I, I just it didn't feel so momentous to me, and it may have to do with the setting, may have to do with the fact that Star Trek is back in full swing, and so it's kind of this weird thing where um, maybe my nonchalance about sitting in a captain's chair is reflective of this great time that we live in, actually, that Star Trek is just all around us again. Yeah, can you imagine seeing the first electric light bulb versus we don't look at them at all anymore? I mean, we're completely nonchalant about flipping a light switch and turning lights on. But if you were living at a time in which nobody, or in a place where nobody really had electricity, and then you saw it, oh man, different experience. So maybe that's really true. You Mm -hmm. know, we live in a time where we can expect Star Trek, so it doesn't feel quite as special to us when it happens, because... Of course, I'm entitled to my Star Trek now. You know, we'll, we'll keep coming out. We'll keep watching it. Absolutely. So still have to wait for several months. <laughs> Can you believe it? Several months until Picard comes out. But you know, it's terrible. Is it actually being called Picard? It's Star Trek Picard. Star Trek colon Picard. 
amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Tell your mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom. My mom, for context, is the biggest Sir Pat Stu fan. He's her original celebrity crush. So I will tell my mother. She'll be very pleased. There is one last thing that I want to bring up about the Paley Center exhibit. So as we were leaving the exhibit, we passed this very large poster for Star Trek Discovery. This poster has been out since before season two. It was the key art for advertising season two. And as we were walking past it, our friend James T. Keen, who's been on this podcast numerous times, noticed something peculiar about this poster. Something that only a planetary scientist would notice. There's a flaming asteroid in the poster, and James pointed out that the image they used for the asteroid is Mars's moon Phobos. He was like, oh my god, I think that's Phobos, because... And I kid you not, he said, because the striations look right. <laughs> Just basically these, these linear topographical features on Phobos reminded him of that. And it was like he thought it was Phobos and he looked it up and it was. And then we realized that the planets that were vaguely in the background were Venus. Says two of them. There were two flipped, Venuses. Flipped horizontally it's this texture that's the radar map that they made of venus exactly yeah so it's uh it's a picture of what venus looks like without the clouds essentially so i'll try to find one of these posters online i'll put it in the show notes and when you look at it and you take a close look you are actually looking at the planet venus twice and <laughs> mars's moon phobos on fire, on fire. <laughs> how is it on fire i don't know but <laughs> It's great. And I love that they're using real planetary imagery in their posters. I just can't believe that it took us this long to discover that those things were actually in the poster. I think James also said that the the star background looked like it was actually a real image, even though he couldn't tell you exactly what corner of the sky it was because of how noisy the stars were. They didn't look like they looked like noisy data. They didn't look like perfect art stars. So he thinks that they were actually using a real image of stars as a background, too. Yeah, and in fact, Peter noticed something about one of the stars. Oh, I had diffraction spikes and airy rings. What are those? Which is uh, artifacts that you get when light from the star goes to your telescope and your optics. So it's really interesting, right? It's, 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 we are looking at this starscape as seen by what a telescope would see. Not, you know, you're not floating out in space. Um, you're actually looking through a telescope. That's amazing. You know, I, I probably... To, to, to my shame as a planetary scientist would not have noticed these things about this poster, but I'm just so, like, my heart is overflowing that I have friends who would notice these things about <laughs> this poster, and uh, it's just great. And so uh, I'm looking forward to more planetary and astronomy real-life data sets in Star Trek in the future. Hey, if it ain't broke, it's pretty cool that they're using it. All right, any last things that you want to say about the playlist? It's free. Go, go to the exhibit. It's totally free. So if you're in the L.A. area before July 7th, you should head over to the Paley Center for Media and check out the Star Trek Discovery Fight for the Future exhibit. It's well worth it. And again, as Lee said, it's absolutely free. So make it so. Peter, we're going to beam you out now. No, don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. You'll feel great. A new you will feel great on the other side. No! Well, that was a fun discussion. It's always cool to get Peter in on our little escapades. Oh, man. And last time at Caltech, too. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, um, after you graduate, I will have uh, a lot less reason to visit. But JPL is still here. That's true. Yeah. I don't think I can replace JPL. 
I mean, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm pretty great. You're pretty great. No, um, yeah, not no. <laughs> but um, but we'll we'll do a podcast about the Tilly book. Um, yep. Once uh, I become a real human who can read again, yeah. that'll be so nice. Uh-huh. I'm super super excited about that. Yeah, it's a great book, and uh, and I'll probably see you over the summer because um, we'll be very close to one another in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And then you'll be off to Denmark. I'll be able to watch Star Trek on Netflix. Yeah, you'll be- yes! <laughs> <laughs> Take that, CBS. Uh, <laughs> I'm escaping. Yeah. You know, if you have time while you're off doing amazing science and uh, living a, a great life in Europe, you know, you know, we can always Skype in and you can tell me your thoughts on the, the your, your research project, first of all, how that's going, and also about the glorious Star Trek series that are going to be out next year, um, especially the Picard series. Well, Elise, it's been a fun run podcasting with you ever since, well, it's been almost two years now since we started this podcast. And then, you know, I graduated, but we stayed in touch. You were a guest on a couple of the episodes through subspace communications. And then as I came back to visit Caltech and it's, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah. To, thank you. Yeah. This has been super fun, but um, it is not the end. It is only the end specifically at Caltech. Right. And I'm quite okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end at Caltech where it all began. Well, not really. Actually, in two weeks, I'm heading back to Caltech for the Sagan Summer Workshop, an annual astronomy gathering named after the one and only Carl Sagan. Elise won't be there, though, and to be honest, that's gonna feel pretty weird. But still, there will be tons of other friends, scientists, and Trekkies to talk to. And I look forward to bringing you content from my next trip to Pasadena. But first on Strange New Worlds, we're going to stop by the Astrobiology Science Conference, which was held in Seattle and featured Star Trek Discovery star Anthony Rapp. That's right. You heard me correctly. Anthony Rapp, Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets himself, right here on Strange New Worlds. Until next time, see you out there. It's just interesting as like, all of our clothes also have uh, words on them. Let's see what I'm wearing. Oh, yeah. DS9. Awesome. Yeah, so, so I wonder if, if Sarah was wearing, like, uh, Vulcan's version of, a, like, a TV show. Oh, TV show. Oh, T-shirt. I was, it's such a classy robe, though. I don't think. Do, would Vulcans watch TV? They watch logic programs. <laughs> logic 4D programs. chess games. 3D <laughs> chess plus time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>